Ryan Graciano remembers the early days of Credit Karma like they just happened. Born in the midst of a financial crisis, Credit Karma's rise to significance didn't seem certain. And Ryan remembers thinking to himself numerous times, are we going to make it? Today, Credit Karma serves more than 100 million users and provides customers with tools that empower them to make the biggest financial steps of their lives. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ryan discusses the early turbulence the company endured, how he leads through trying times, and how Credit Karma is helping in more ways than just providing credit scores. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we are joined by special guest, Ryan, what's going on? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ian. Thanks for joining. We are excited to talk to you today about all things Credit Karma. Um, you all have an amazing story. And uh, we're going to get into the uh, the technical nuts and bolts a little bit here and, uh, and, and into your background. So let's get into it. How'd you get started in technology? Well, that was a long time ago. I was uh, uh, somewhere in the 10 to 12 age range. I actually don't remember how old I was, but I was we had a Tandy 100. I don't know if you remember that. Very old computer. It was popular for a no, little while. I don't. Yeah, it was one of those MS-DOS-based things. I think it had Windows 3.1 on it. Uh, and we had this, uh, this neighbor kid. He was a few years older than me. And he brought over a disk with uh, GW Basic on it, which was a very simple programming language. And uh, he, he showed me how to draw a circle in GW Basic, and I just thought it was the most amazing thing that someone could make the computer do something like that. And I started to mess around with it and just kind of go through the manual, online docs, well, offline docs back then, I guess. And uh, that started a kind of a lifelong log of love of making computers do things. Flash forward to today, tell me what it means to be CTO of Credit Karma. It's CTO of Credit Karma is a really interesting job. You know, I started at Credit Karma in 2007. And we had essentially a one-person engineering team. That was me. And so I had to design the systems, write the code, map out our policy. You know, It was really a jack-of-all-trades kind of thing. And fast forward to today, we have about 800 people on my team in disciplines ranging from security through design. And uh, it's, uh, it's a, in some ways, it's similar in that I have to kind of span all of these different disciplines and and have a feel for how they work, Um, but I can't be super deep in any one of them. And where it's uh, really uh, an interesting job, I think, is that when you're when you're really early in your career, you're doing a lot of systems work. You know, you're designing how things should operate and seeing them through to their completion. And when you're in the middle of your career, you're learning how people work. You know, what makes people tick and how do you you know, create systems of people. And then later, you know, when you have these much bigger teams, it's, it's again kind of like the systems thing. You're actually mapping out how these different organizations of people should work together and thinking through how they interoperate and what protocols and so on. So 
it's sort of an interesting journey. I feel like it, it kind of comes around to where you started in a way. And for those of our listeners who have been living under a rock, who don't know about Credit Karma, uh, can you share a little bit about the company? You would have to be living under a rock because we have 100 million consumers in the United States. Uh, we've been around for quite a while, yeah, 2007. And what we essentially do is what we uh, make information accessible to consumers and we try to enable our consumers to make the best financial decisions possible so that they can make financial progress. And how I often describe it to people, the credit system is, it's, it's kind of a funny system. We've all sort of come to, you know, learn how to operate with it. But if you go to, you know, if you go to get a financial product in the United States, um, I, I like to compare it to buying something really mundane, like buying shoes. If, if you're going to buy shoes, you walk into the shoe store, uh, imagine a scenario where there are no shoes there. There's just an application to buy shoes. And you fill out the application and then they say, okay, well, here are the shoes that you are eligible for. We won't tell you all the shoes that we have. Uh, we won't tell you how we made the decision that you could get these shoes. Uh, and you could ask like, well, okay, what information did you even use to, sh to show me which shoes I can get? And they won't tell you that either, but you can pay money. You can pay $20 a month to another company that will give you the data that this first company used make that decision. It's just like an, a fantastically complicated way to acquire a product. Uh, and the reason is that the, the information is asymmetric. The, the bank and the credit bureau have information that the consumer doesn't have. And so our idea behind Credit Karma is what if we could give the consumer access to that information to level the playing field so they actually could get some transparency into what products are available to them and, and make more rational decisions, creating a more efficient market. Yeah, it is funny, you know, the rise of technology and the proliferation of transparency, right? It's like all of these things were so difficult to figure out before we had, you know, all of the information on the internet that we could just look at all this. So, you know, coincidentally, the rise of, you know, the internet changed a bunch of that. But then around when you were starting Credit Karma, the rise of social, right? So now not only... Um, now, not only do we have all the information, we can share it with each other in real time and we can complain about it and we can ask our friends and we can see what other people are talking about. And it the, the information sharing, uh, obviously at an all-time high, but now we kind of know what's going on, sort of. And that's you know where a company like Credit Karma comes in with all of the helpful stuff that you have, all of these tools, all of these things. I'm curious, like, how do you look at managing such like a scope of uh, and a responsibility of making sure that people are making the right financial decisions? Well, I think first it's you know it's a it's a very complicated problem. So what we try to do is break the problem down into its its constituent parts, and often that is driven by you know who stands to gain from from you know which system and which action, and we try to create solutions where everybody will win. So the consumer will win, the bank will win, and the credit bureau will win. Because as long as you, as you can do things that are in everybody's best interest, everyone's very willing to work with you and make progress. If you're trying to you know, make one party advance at the expense of the others, then you know, you're met with great resistance, right? So uh, how we constructed you know, our initial vision was, hey, we'll, we'll figure out a way to make this information available to consumers. The bureaus will gain because it's a, it's a new way of monetizing their data. You know, we'd be paying them directly. 
um, rather than the consumer. And it's a much better interaction for them than the way that they were charging consumers before, which wasn't a great brand image for them. I think it's a much better exchange nowadays. And the banks gain because, you know, ultimately when they have consumers who are better educated, who are making better decisions, who are taking products that they feel like are, are fair and balanced, they, they get more loyal consumers. So they get consumers who are uh, a better credit risk, consumers that stick around longer, consumers that take multiple products with the same bank and develop some more loyalty. So how we, you know, I've always tried to approach it when we're breaking down the problem is, okay, how do, how do we figure out a model that works for, for everybody? And the internet really has enabled that, you know, via access that we have to machine learning at scale in the cloud, through direct access to consumers en masse through the app store, you know, all of these um, distribution channels and advanced technologies have really allowed us to disrupt finance in the way that would, would have frankly probably been impossible, you know, prior to the mid 2000s. And I guess what is what is the uh, the state of, of where all this is right now? Where is the industry at? That's an interesting question. So the financial industry is very different by vertical. So if you go to the most technologically enabled, which is something like credit cards, you have online applications, you have transparent approval through our platform. So for example, if you're on our platform and you see a little tag that says that you're pre-approved for something, you're upwards of 90% odds of approval for that product because the bank's model is actually integrated with our system and our system knows that you will be approved for that in a way that just you know couldn't have existed before and so for uh something like credit card and personal loan um, not only do they have that transparent approval but we've also streamlined the application flow so you can get just a couple clicks and then a digital delivery of your products you might actually even get um, some kind of uh, apple wallet type uh, credit card integration right away or you'll get something uh, digitally that you can use. So that those things are super streamlined. Then there are these verticals like mortgage, auto, that are just way more complicated. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to buy a house, but it is a, a very onerous experience. And oh yeah, one there's just a lot of regulation, right? So there's a a, a whole bunch of burden that companies have you know, had to kind of work around. There's a lot of legacy stuff that doesn't totally make sense anymore. I was talking to a company who, that was digitizing the mortgage process um, some years ago. And they were saying that they, they were using a, a picture of your, it was some kind of income statement, like a W-2. So you take a picture of your W-2 with your phone and then you upload it. And that was supposed to streamline the process. But the problem was that the, the regulators would not accept that. I think it was Fannie Mae wouldn't accept that because an image could be altered was, the, was their reasoning. So what they had to do was convert the image into a PDF, which they did find acceptable. Kind of a funny artifact of a, a very old policy in terms of what, what is manipulable and what is not. I mean, they're, they're effectively the same thing. Um, but the, this is kind of the what is happening in uh, disruption of these financial systems is that people are having to figure out, okay, how do I kind of meet the, the letter and spirit of the law, but then still operate in 
you know, 2020 where consumers expect to be able to use their phone. You know, I should be able to take a picture of something and upload it and have a streamlined process. You know, I'm, I'm able to talk to my doctor online. Why can't I do my uh, mortgage process completely digitally? And it's very different depending on where you are. You know, for if you're refinancing an auto loan in some states, you actually have to go to the DMV, which is probably the most onerous funnel step I've ever even heard of. You know, companies like us, you know, we're trying to work with um, regulators and go in uh, banks and work state by state to say, hey, how can this process be better? And how can we achieve the same kind of, you know, anti-fraud and pro-consumer policy, but do it in a way that, you know, today's consumers expect um, and not in such a kind of painful, onerous way. So it really depends on on which vertical and, you know, kind of which aspect of the financial system. But there's a, there's a lot to, to be worked through there. So in my prep for this episode, I was planning on just coming on and asking you to say, what credit card should I get? What's the best one? Um, <laughs> but fortunately, I went to, uh, went to Credit Karma. By the way, it took legitimately four minutes uh, to go through everything. And uh, just so many helpful tools. It's just great. I love it. Um, and uh, to, your, to your home buying point, I was looking back at my... Um, the home loans that I've had. I'm like, I can't, I couldn't even remember all of the home loans because they were bought and purchased and resold and all these other things that happens with these home loans. I'm like, how have I had so many home loans in my life? And yet, uh, you know, here I am not owning any property currently. It's just a wild world. That's great to hear. And that's essentially, you know, our playbook. We want to make your mortgage as easy as that credit card. And it's possible. Uh, and so, you know, one of the reasons that we have, you know, our free tax product is that if you if you do have your tax return integrated with us, you know, imagine how easy income verification would be if you went to get a mortgage. And so things like that make your whole, you know, kind of financial life easier as we're able to build sort of a digital wallet for you um, that once you go to get your own your next, you know, home equity line of credit, um, we can just put in front of you, hey, we've already pre-qualified you for everything you could possibly want. This is the best one. The application is a handful of clicks. We'll put in front of you all the downsides and the process is as easy as it possibly can be. And so there's a, a future there where uh, all that pain goes away. Um, and I, I think we can get there. You know, I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll get out of just the, uh, um, just the credit score and stuff in a little bit here. Because I want to talk about, you know, back to the role of the C, CTO. But it is so curious that like so many of these things you know, hard inquiries, uh, credit card use, payment history, credit age, all these things that you can now see in with, you know, again, in four minutes on Credit Karma, you can see all this stuff about yourself. Um, and it's like so many people just have absolutely no idea what any of these things mean or how their credit was positively or negatively affected at any point in their life. It's just so confusing. Um, and, uh, and at times it kind of seems like uh, maybe it was meant to be a little confusing. Yeah, it's interesting because it's never really a, been a system that was developed for the consumer as the end user, right? So the idea, and, and the idea makes sense. So the, the idea is that, hey, if you want to apply for a financial product, the bank needs to know how big a risk you are. And if they don't know how big a risk you are, they price you as if you're a very big risk, right? Because they can't really do any better than that. They'll just price you on the average. So if you're a good consumer, you get hugely penalized. And in countries without any kind of credit system, what happens is that each individual bank 
holds all the data. And if you're trying to leave your bank to go to another bank, you effectively can't do it because the other bank doesn't have the information on you that the first bank has, so they can't price you effectively. So the bank that has you can say, okay, well, um, I can price you better than the other guy, but I don't need to go all the way to being as efficient as I could be because there's not really competition. So what the credit bureaus, I think, have done is, is a good thing. They've created a more competitive system by making that data accessible to all, which enables the banks to underwrite everyone more effectively, which actually is long-term better for the banks as well, which they, you know, I think recognize. And so the, the system then um, is, is designed to create this, you know, more competitive environment. What it's not really designed to do is to inform the consumer though, right? It's designed to be, it's designed to be a risk profile on a consumer that is read by the bank and is kept by the bureau and can change over time depending on you know, the needs of the banks and the bureaus. And I think that what happened is that that, that data is so impactful to the consumer's life that people you know, stood up and said, well, wait a minute, you know, my, my ability to buy a house or a car is completely dependent on this system now. And so you know, regulars came in and set some rules and we started to create more transparency and uh, companies like ours, and I think we really led the way we came in and said, all right, let's, let's make this understandable so that consumers not only know what goes into that underwriting and, and how the banks are thinking about them, but they know what to do about it. They can understand that information. They can dispute it if it's wrong, which is a huge thing. We're the, the first, and I think we're still the only to do online direct dispute. So you can just dispute incorrect information on your report digitally. It used to be like you had to write a bunch of letters and that kind of stuff. Um, and so our, our whole thing was let's take this system that's so impactful to people and actually make it consumable by people. But it was never designed that way. It was designed as a statistical risk model. Um, you know, it's designed as a way for, for banks to figure out you know, how to price you. So back to your role as CTO. Um, are you working on developing the product? Are you working on, uh, you know, the tech stack? Are you working on internal things for employees, like traditional CIO activities? What's the scope of your role? So I have, so in underneath my purview, I have the engineering team and we have an SVP of engineering that, that runs that underneath me. I have analytics, data science and, and recommendations the security organization and our core product and, and design organizations. And so I span a lot of different things. It's essentially everything that kind of goes into developing the product. And what I'm typically thinking about is just what's the biggest thing that's really going to impact us in a year or two. So let's try to where I, like try to keep my head in a couple years out so that I'm constantly working towards what that goal looks like. And it depends a lot on what the year is. So you know, last year I was spending a lot of time on coming up with an algorithmic system that would effectively determine what content you see in which parts of our application so that our application could become, uh, I would say, you know, fully intelligent so that it would know who you are and what you're doing and what your goal is and what you have done and what your next, next step should be. And so we developed a lot of technology powered by a, a pretty sophisticated machine learning system that we have called our recommendation system. And uh, effectively what it, what it does is it, it 
it recognizes units of content. You could sort of think of, of it as like a super flexible content management system. And it connects uh, where you are in the product and what uh, backing data that we have and what goals it knows about you to what we think you should be doing next um, to put the right content in front of you at the right time. And it changes its presentation kind of based on you know, where it is, um, where, it, where it's stated, uh, set in the product. And the reason for that is just that uh, as our end goal is to be able to effectively um, automate your finances, you know, we want to be able to not only you know, make recommendations for you, but be able to say, hey, you know, we could save you money right now. All you have to do is click this button and you know, it'll just magically happen. Uh, that requires a system that you know really is pretty sophisticated on the on the back end, and when we have so many different offerings, auto, mortgage, credit cards, personal loans, being some of the products that we can offer, we also have a tax product, and you know you can imagine all the different interactions between those things. As you make one change financially, we want to change your tax return to reflect that. Uh, we have we developed a pretty uh, interesting set of technologies that would enable that kind of thing. So my head was there last year because we had gone past the stage I would call capability building, which is where we're just sort of you know building the tax product, building the mortgage product into where I would say is more of a, a next level sophistication where you're integrating these things in an intelligent way. And so usually I'm every year I'm thinking, okay, where are we going to need to be? in a couple of years. And if we're going to need to be there in a couple of years, what do I need to be doing right now to, to pave that path? And if you ever lose sight of that to your goal, it can be very easy just to kind of get swept up in the flavor of the moment. Cause there's always a, you know, a company priority at the moment that can drive all of your attention. It's very easy to live in the now, but I think if you're a good senior executive, you should be thinking, long-term always, you know, how do I actually make sure that I'm still on the path so that in two years time, I'm going to be very glad for what I just did. And I'm curious as, you know, with COVID and, and the middle of a, of a global pandemic, I'm sure that, you know, things changed pretty rapidly. Um, how much were you focusing on how, like how your company was working rather than just, you know, what you were building? Very much. I mean, it, yeah, and this is one of those things that, yeah, it just does depend on what's happening externally, what's happening internally and you, uh, and where you are in the year. And COVID was a really, I mean, I'm sure for everybody in every way possible, personal, professional, it, it's just a very disruptive and kind of crazy black swan events. And so for us, you know, is managing everything at once. The financial system changed very dramatically overnight, right? Because as soon as there are hints of recession, banks change how they do underwriting. And fortunately, all that work we put into those smart and flexible systems, they immediately adapted. I mean, they immediately figured out that banks were changing their underwriting and they changed the way that they were operating accordingly. So they weren't making the wrong recommendations to consumers, things that wouldn't make sense anymore. Uh, we then leaned into, okay, yeah, how do we, how do we work now? Uh, which is, I'm sure everyone's going through this, but we were, we were a very in-person culture. We have 
separate offices in different geographies. We do have an office in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, an office in uh, in the UK. But even still, we had remained very re- remained very much an in person culture, and in person meetings and lots of water cooler conversations. And that was just sort of part of who we are. Lots of events, and switching from that to fully remote overnight was a huge a huge shift. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that and working with our management teams. And and each group is different. You know, every group sort of handled it a little bit differently depending on who you are. I saw some groups do a really great job team building with uh, quiz sessions and trivia games after hours to try to replace some of their events. And they organized all sorts of fun and, and interesting things. Uh, even even though the you know the best we can do is video conferencing, and other groups really struggled because they had more introverted folks who were just less uh, less inclined to do that kind of event and community building. And there we had to think about okay, how do we make sure that we're um, being more deliberate about injecting some team building and reasons for face to face interaction. Uh, when you know maybe that might not naturally happen in this new environment, and we learned a lot. You know, I think um, one of the most interesting things is just seeing how how impactful it actually is having people sit in reasonable proximity to one another in a strategic fashion, because you get so many of these uh, just ad hoc interactions that build not only you know trust and community, but a lot of alignment and direction. And so we actually had to start structuring that stuff. Um, you know, you have to start being very deliberate about it. That's been, um, that's been really different and interesting. And so there's, there's a lot of managing that and uh, a lot of managing, I would say that COVID is a, is a crisis. And, you know, I talk a lot about how you manage through crisis is really defines your leadership team because it's easy to manage when, everything's sort of steady. It's hard to manage when things are crazy. So hypergrowth is crazy and it's, it tests you and, and crisis is crazy and it, and it tests you. And so it's also a good time to kind of take stock of your leadership team and your management team and ask yourself, how, how good are we at you know, managing through the tough times and where do we have room for improvement? And it's just a good time to pay attention to how things are going and, and, and how you're doing. Have you found that you know, as a technology leader, that the way that you're, um, you know, building and shipping products has like kind of fundamentally changed for for the near term future for for good. Um, and then also, you know, I I, I do want to ask about the fact you all built relief roadmap uh, in and amongst the the response to this threat. So I want to talk that as well. But um, but first piece, like, has it? How much has it changed? Like, how you're thinking about, you know, shipping? Yeah, I think that you can't you can't pretend that the external environment is what it was because when you have something that's so dramatic as as COVID, you have to acknowledge that. Look, all of our consumers' mindsets are are shifting one way or another, and you have to acknowledge it. And the the acknowledgement that I don't like is just sort of the like the standard email that you get. <laughs> the, you know, the, that, e- that inbox email from your shoe company that says, you know, hey, we're your shoe company and we're thinking about you in times of COVID. It, I get it. It's a way to acknowledge what's happening. And, you know, you, 
you want to acknowledge it somehow, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really help. And so we spent time, you know, as soon as we realized how big, you know, how big this would be strategizing, okay, what can we really do? You know, where can we really be helpful and make a difference? And with us in our platform, we thought that, well, one, we have a lot of strategic priorities that we think are very important in automating finance, and they still remain important, but this, what's happening right now, takes precedence over everything. So we made that decision first, is that we have to prioritize current events above all in the moment, um, because it, it seems uh, not only necessary but to do so, but almost kind of irresponsible not to do so, to, to ignore the needs of so many people. So then we, we said, okay, what, what can we do? Well, with our reach, with our 100 million people and the platform we just built, which is now very sophisticated in understanding who you are and what you need and what you need to do, and it's able to personalize content to you very effectively, we said, well, what is really missing right now is a way to figure out what you should be doing. Because at the time, and I think this is actually still true, what you're seeing is banks responding and saying, okay, we have this deferral program and this, this other program. These are all the things that you can do. And then your, your county might say something and the city would say something and the federal government says something and they're all doing things at different times. So any given day, you're getting a different email from somebody else and they all have their own requirements, you know, income restrictions and timing and fine print. And it's just, it's very complicated to track all of this, all of these different things. And so what we thought we could do is actually, what if we encoded all of these programs in our system and created an actual roadmap? So, hey, here's what you should do in this order. Here's how you should go down this list and personalize it to you so that we're not showing you every bank's thing for mortgages. We're just, we're highlighting, this is your bank. This is, this is what applies to you. If it doesn't apply to you, and we know it doesn't apply to you, there's really no reason to show you. We'll, we'll leave it at the bottom and sort of a, you know, kind of a hidden set of things that, you know, if you really want to read all of it, go for it. But, you know, there's not really a reason to waste your time if we know it doesn't apply. And so we called that the relief roadmap and we um, put it out there in, I think it was pretty early. It was like mid-March. We were able to develop it in about two weeks, the first version, because we were able to just leverage our existing technologies. And the heaviest lift was actually coming up with the content and coding all that content and coming up with an intelligent taxonomy of content was, was really tough. And we, we had a ton of engagement. We got really great feedback from people that it was the first time they'd actually seen a list of curated content for you that said, hey, do this thing and then do this thing and then, then do this thing. Um, and that it eased people's uh, mental burden, which was something that we have a, we have a great research team it spends a lot of time talking to our members. And one of the things that we learned from them is just that the stress of trying to understand what do I do next is just overwhelming to people. There's already so much change in their lives. And then you have all of these financial options sort of popping up and, and it's in a, and they tend to be very complex options. They're not always such easy trade-offs that uh, a lot of our consumers were, were reporting depression and severe anxiety just over their you know, financial decisions. And we got a lot of great feedback that product was really helping people. And that was, a, I think, a great moment for the team to feel like we had, we had 
and our done our part to you know ease the crisis in, in what way we could. One of the things that I think has been so cool is just watching companies use what they have at their disposal. Disposal, you know, like um, you know, we talk to folks of all different types of companies. And if you're, you know, making physical goods, then maybe you can switch to making masks. Or, you know, if you're, uh, if you have a hundred million users, uh, you probably have a bunch of information that you could, you know, tailor content to those folks and, and pay attention to what they're, uh, they're doing to listen better. And I think that it's cool to see that. And, uh, if you go to creditkarma.com slash relief, our, our listeners can check that out. But, um, yeah, there's just, you know, I think that one of the things, the anxiety of everything is combated by, you know, honesty and transparency and information. And that's a lot of stuff we didn't have about COVID was about what actually is, you know, the ground truth. So, you know, organizations like yours being able to provide that transparency is super important. Yeah, and it was great, I think, to give people, you know, at that time, and I think this is still somewhat true, you know, people want to help, but it's hard to figure out where do you start. And, you know, we were trying to, you know, both be organized sort of local, local philanthropy, but you know, it was great to have something that the company could really rally behind and, and give, some, give people something to really do with that energy that really helps. Obviously, we can't talk about credit and not talk about security. Uh, you know, everybody is worried um, about security as it as it's regard to their their uh, their personal accounts, their their banking accounts, their uh, their financial situation, and uh, you know, with Equifax breach, obviously, it's at the absolute top of mind when it comes to. Uh, everything with your credit score. So I'm curious, like, what's under the hood from a security perspective on Credit Karma? It's always been a focus for us. And it's some of it is because of just my own background. So I was just sort of a hobbyist in high school and college and kind of a passionate advocate for computer security. So I spent a lot of time learning to a lot of time learning to break into things and a lot of academic work and I just found it to be a fascinating space. And I took a lot of that practical knowledge into, the, into when we began Credit Karma. And my, my basic philosophy was that, look, if you don't design it to be secure, it won't be secure, right? There's only so much you can do to secure something after the fact if it's fundamentally not been designed in a way that leads you to something that's hard to break. And so, you know, one of the, we shot a video in our office to, uh, illustrate this concept to people. It, it was one of our first videos that we did on the secure by design concept. And you do stuff like this to just to illustrate it to new employees, right? Because even if you have this kind of cultural foundation and people talk about it, you need to continually re-educate, which has always been a part of our process. And so in the video, you know, we kind of demonstrate what what the security team does and what the engineering team does and sort of what they're respective roles can be and how they should integrate. And we have this metaphor where you have, well, you can design, you know, a castle, you can design a bunch of tents and you can try to protect one versus the other. The castle is obviously easier to protect. It has higher walls, fewer entrances, you know, it's sort of the prototypical, uh, prototypical difficult thing to break into. If you have a, if you designed a series of tents and you've, create a scenario where if any one tent goes down, the whole system goes down, 
you actually have this, a serious problem. You've just designed, a, you've designed something that can't be protected. And it's a bit of a naive analogy because actually in, in real life, um, at the castle actually doesn't work because you, one single big thing is usually actually a problem. You need to create a system that is actually distributed in a way that breaking any one thing doesn't cause the whole house of cards to come down. But the analogy works because it gets people to understand, you know, you have to think about it from the moment you start designing the system. You can't build the thing and then say, okay, how do I go secure the thing that I built? Because it could be too late. And so that mindset, I think, is the most important thing to have. And where we want the security team to really engage with the engineering team is at that design phase. Okay, what are we trying to do? And how can we do it in a way that will make it very hard to break later? And so we won't have to put a ton of effort into securing it after the fact because we'll already be done that way. And we've gone through, you know, many iterations of that. And as the state of the art has changed, you know, we've replatformed things and changed things as as everybody has on the on the back end. But you know, a lot of what we've tried to do is just make it extremely difficult to get to personal information. You know, creating very difficult walls there behind our product and um, system after system that we design, you know, we're just always thinking through what are, what are the most common vectors that people would, you know, malicious attackers would use in overcoming these things and how would we design that system to just take those away entirely. And so one of my philosophies has always been if an employee can do it, an attacker can do it, right? So you have to design systems where you have two two keys turned type of things where there's no one single actor who can take you down or do too much. And when you start thinking that way, when you start thinking, well, I can't, I shouldn't trust my own people. Um, even if you can, you know, whatever the idea is that you, sh- if you, if you think from a position of trusting your people, you're kind of trusting an attacker that takes that person's identity over. So you have to think, okay, I can't trust my own people. I need to create a system where, no one person can, can ever take us down. And when you think that way, it leads you down you know, a bunch of interesting paths in how you design your IT systems and how you interact with your production environment and what, even, what line even exists there and how you, know, how, how you approach that and how data is accessed and who can access data. And so we've spent a ton of time on that. Um, you know, for our entire 13 years, it's been the number one priority every year. <laughs> and I would bet on it being the number one priority for the next 13 um, because it is, you know, you have to, you have to keep evolving. You can't, you're never done with security. You just have to, you have to keep going. You have to keep moving along with the state of the art and you have to keep up with the pace of the, of the company's growth. And, you know, that's been, that's been our approach for a long time and something that I'm very passionate about. You launched the company back in 2007, right before the financial crisis, uh, as a fintech company. Not always, not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, any crazy, crazy stories from the early days? Starting a financial services company in 2007 is kind of a crazy thing. I guess I shouldn't say financial services. We're really more a consumer company, but we operate in the kind of financial realm. And how we make money is effectively on loans closing. So if you take a credit card on our site. Um, we'll, we'll get a commission, you know, for that credit card that you get. And, um, that's usually more than made up for how efficient that was for the, for the consumer. So everyone kind of wins there. But if your model is based on lending in 2007 and then 2008 happens, 
the public conversation at that point is bailing out the banks. So nobody, nobody is going to give you money. I mean, no, no VC is lining up to cut you a check for your series A in 2008. They're, they're, they're more like best of luck to you guys. Hope you make it. I, you're definitely not getting a dollar from me. That was, that was like the conversation back then. And so it was incredible that first year because we, we had achieved this product market fit. We had this great product. We were really starting to get traction. And then when the financial crisis happened, it was like, holy cow, how are we going to survive this? And what we did effectively was we just, we had about half a million dollars in, in funds raised and we just tried to make it last. We kind of did anything that we could to keep costs low. I, you know, I, I did member support myself. I, would, uh, I had a separate inbox where I would manage uh, my member support escalations and a separate system for that that I would manage. And we just did everything we could to, to not spend cash and make it last because we knew that when the financial system comes back, we have something great. But the challenge is how do you, how do you make it? that long. And it took us to till about 2010 when we finally raised our $2 million Series A, but we had, we had been turned down by 40 plus investors at that point. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty bleak back then when, when the banks were closing doors and mortgages were closing up. It was, it was not feeling like a good time to be a, a, <laughs> anywhere in finance. Uh, but the once the recovery happened and things started to come back and we saw some uh, some momentum in 2010 through 2012, that's when our business was really able to pick up because once it's possible to create revenue again, you're able to to go and market. And when you market, you get more customers, more customers, more. You know, you get that flywheel going. And by 2012, we were able to really get the flywheel going, and that's when the business really really started to pick up. But we had Probably three, three-ish times when we almost, uh, almost closed the doors entirely. It was really intense. Uh, many moments where I thought that a lot of work had gone into this and it was all going to go under. You know, with the recent uh, announcement uh, of the acquisition, and everything it's uh, I I feel like you know it was all it was all worth it in the end and a hundred million uh, hundred million. Um, folks on the platform later, uh, it sure feel, feels like you made a, a massive difference. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing to look back on it and see how how brilliantly it all turned out. And it's just it's hard to relay the what it was like from '08 to 2012, 2013, when you're really you're really just grinding it out to survive. You know, you have four or five years where you're tiny. You're not making any money. You're barely making payroll. It's not feeling like you're going to ever clear a single dollar, let alone, you know, the kind of success we eventually had. And my, you know, my wife would many times ask me like, is this worth it? You could be, you know, you could go work for Google or something and get a steadier paycheck and, or you'd start another company and, you know, take another at bat and something that's hotter right now. But the, we just really thought that we were one solving a really big problem. You know, the, the problem that we were solving is is a huge one. And two, we we had product market fit. We had a good product. People liked it. It's rare that you that you discover that. 
both of those things together. You know, often you go after a big problem, you can't quite crack it. Sometimes you have a, a great product people like, but there's just not really like a market fit and you can't actually make money. You can't create a business. And we had both and we believed it would, it would be something, it could be something. We just had to be patient. And so it just took a certain amount of tenacity just to, just to push through that and, and believe that this will work. We just have to get the timing right. And so we, we did, we, we hung on for those, you know, those four, four or five years and it, and it did, it did turn into something, but it took a lot of belief. You know, it was not, it was not easy. That's the thing I, I try to remind people of. It did, it did not happen overnight. Rarely does. So what's next? What's, uh, what's on the horizon? For us, you know, I, I still believe we have so much to do in automating finance. So uh, one thing that I'm really looking forward to, the announcement was made, you know, Intuit has announced that they intend to acquire Credit Karma. And there are some really, I think, brilliant things that we can do together to really create a much more efficient environment for everybody. So I think there's a lot to do to make mortgage better that by our powers combined we can do. So I'm excited about that. We're also getting into moving money for the first time. So if you think, what would it take to really make an awesome financial product, something that could help you save for your retirement effectively and make sure you have a great emergency savings account and that you're moving money when you need to, you know, we need to have that ability. So we created our first savings account and you know, there's a lot more to come there as we try to tackle this problem where so much of America doesn't have emergency savings and it doesn't have a strong plan for digging themselves out of debt. There are a lot of things that, that we can do that behavioral economists see, but there's not really a good way to reach consumers. A platform like ours can create those interfaces and those interactions so that we can create sort of a snowball effect where you know, just bit by bit, we can get consumers to engage in these little behaviors to squirrel away little bits of money and that we can help take that and turn that into something big for them. And so there's a lot of opportunity for us there. And I think we can actually really make a difference. And I'm excited about that. We're working on that right now. Let's get into our lightning rounds. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. Lightning round questions. Ryan, are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. Number one, have you picked up a hobby or habit in shelter in place? I don't think I've picked up a hobby. I have continued weightlifting. That's been my new thing lately. I've gotten really into weightlifting and I probably hit it even harder in shelter in place just because it's a break from looking at the computer screen. It's, you know, it's much more physical. So I've been spending a lot of time in the gym, actually. I guess it's a surprisingly healthy. Oh, I should. Oh, no, I should also mention uh, I've been making cocktails. That's my unhealthy habit. I did pick that up in shelter in place. I'm not going to go to restaurants. I'm going to do it myself. I hear you. Favorite book, podcast, or TV show you've been binging? Lately, uh, I've been wa- I watched The Politician on Netflix. That was my that was my recent thing. And The Great, which is a on it's actually a Hulu thing about Catherine the Great, and I love that kind of historical drama. So I've been uh, I've been into that dramedies. Best advice for a first time CTO: Be patient. You know, it's uh, not everything happens overnight and have a plan. Think ahead. Favorite restaurant in Oakland? I, I really like Comey, but you know, actually, if you're just to ask me what I want on any given night, it's got to be ramen shop. 
Love the ramen shop. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? You know, I don't get asked that often about what we're sort of charitably kind of personally passionate about outside of work. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of things there. My wife is very much interested in prison reform right now and thinks that the prison system in the United States has contributed to a history of systemic racial discrimination. And it's kind of almost taboo in a way politically to talk about the prison system uh, because of the way that justice works in the United States. And that's, uh, I think, a super interesting area that I, I never really talk about, but here's an opportunity. Well, Ryan, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining. Any, uh, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Check out our relief roadmap if you haven't. Check out our savings product if you haven't done that. I think we're going to do a lot of really interesting things with that. And uh, yeah, stay sane in COVID. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining. Talk soon. Thank you. It was great. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.